It's been a little while since I've seen you, it feels like. Three weeks since I've been in this pulpit, two weeks ago, that freak snowstorm that made us cancel the 930 and then hopefully thought we'd be able to eke out the 11, then we had to cancel that one too. Then last week, I was preaching at another congregation nearby, so I miss you. I miss you, and it's good to see you all, and um, I feel like... I feel like we need to get reacquainted. So why don't we get to know each other a little bit? How about a little bit, a minute or so of an icebreaker? And I'd like to answer just with the person seated next to you. Might know him well, might not know him well. Answer this question. The three places you want to go before you die. Come on. Get into it. Thank you. I want to invite you to um, maybe continue making your travel plans after the service during coffee hour, getting connected with each other, maybe checking out Expedia. So yeah, that's the great thing about an icebreaker is actually I saw it on some of your faces like, I haven't thought about this question. That's what it does. It breaks the ice. It allows us to see some of the depth, some of the things we carry with us through this life that maybe if we don't get the invitation to break the ice, we don't go deeper. We don't pay attention. Sometimes in our lives, like you've just been invited to right now. We have an opportunity to make a choice to break the ice. Sometimes the ice is broken for us. I mentioned before about being at another congregation last week. I was there with uh, Kathy Burke Howe, who is one of the co-leaders of our addictions and recovery ministry here at Wellsprings. And it wasn't just any congregation. It was Mainline Unitarian Church, which about a decade ago, even longer than that, was one of the first funders of Wellsprings. And so it was actually great on our eighth birthday here at Wellsprings for a couple of us from Wellsprings to go back to our origins and to be able to say thank you and not just thank you, but also share with them some of our growth and our strength. In my part of the message, Kathy had the other part, I shared with them my reflection on when I did an icebreaker with them And when, although I was not expecting it, they helped me, I'd say almost demanded, without knowing it, to break my eyes. See, it was September 18th, 2005. I was in their pulpit for a little bit of get to know you. Three, four minutes at the start of each of their services, 9 and 11 o'clock. I was about at that point six weeks in to founding Wellsprings. I was the founding member. At that point, I was the only member. We had a whole nest of money, but nothing else. Founding minister. And I would say the bloom was coming off the rose at that point, six weeks in. It was like, for those of you who are Star Wars fans, Empire Strikes Back, when Luke all brash goes into his training, I'm not afraid. And Yoda says, you will be. (laughs) You will be. I was at that moment, I was wondering what the hell I got myself into, what I was doing in my life, and I was wondering, was I really fit for this? Was perhaps this is the moment in which, what I call that, the Peter Principle was going to be enacted, and all my failings were going to be exposed. And after I did a little icebreaker with them during the service, both times, after both services, people came up, gave me a lot of support, a lot of encouragement, got your back, glad you're here. And then I also got some, shall we say, less encouraging questions. Not mean, but pointed. I mean, it was within their right. They were the ones paying for all this. They wanted to know what I was actually going to do with their money. 
And I felt within me all that insecurity, and I felt within me all that sense of inadequacy. And I did that night what I had done so many other times. When I felt inadequate in my life, I went out and I got rip-roaring drunk, which absolutely did nothing to dispel that inadequacy and that sense of shame and that sense of lack of fitness. It actually made it so much worse. And that next morning, I woke up, like limitless numbers of mornings before that, with the hangover. But something sometime was different this time and the god of my understanding experience whatever you would wish to call it something broke through that ice and i felt as clearly as i feel my feet underneath me right now speaking before you that this time was going to be different and that was september 19 2005 the anniversary of my sobriety nine years four months or so plus now so what i told him last week is you catalyzed my sobriety, folks. <laughs> I believe it was coming anyway, but you're the ones who kind of helped to break that ice. And so they were an occasion of grace for me. I was living within a constricted and frozen identity, a too small identity for the life that wanted to live within me. And so I got to be able to say thank you. Thank you for cracking my ice. Thank you for helping me realize the wisdom of this poem by William Stafford, with the simple question, ask me, begins with these words. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me whether what I have done is my life. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me whether what I have done is my life. And like one response is, duh, what I've done is my life. Obviously, there's the facts. We know sometimes we can hide out in the facts of life. And life is so much more than just what we've done. That question, sometime when the river is ice, ask me whether I've done it in my life. I'd always experienced that before, and certainly since I've gotten sober, as getting in touch with that image of what's below the ice. That flow of life, as the poet says, of hurt and harm, of healing and helping, of relationships that have come and those that have gone. See, if we take the time to drill down into the ice, past the frozenness, Maybe this answer, ask me, what am I, who am I, is not nearly so obvious. This inquiry, what am I, who am I, ask me, ask ourselves, ask each other, in fact may reveal a depth of being that it might be easy for us to ignore. It's a powerful practice. It's a shaking and quaking practice. It's a healing practice. It's one of the reasons that I believe that the movie Frozen has been so incredibly popular, not just with the younger set, although I did think about asking the band to do Let It Go today, and then I thought that those of you who are parents for kids of a certain age would start throwing rotten fruits and vegetables at the band, and so we elected not to do that. But what's, the, what's, the, what's from that song? You know, conceal, don't feel, don't let it show. Frozenness is not just an outward state. It's a state that Elsa knows inwardly, isolated, cut off. And in fact, this power, this challenging, difficult, painful power of frozenness within our lives, it's not something that Frozen the movie just talks about. It's hundreds and hundreds of years old as a teaching, probably limitlessly old in terms of its time. It's articulated by... Um, Dante's Divine Comedy, for those of you who might remember or read it years ago or part of it might come to mind right now, if you do recall what the 
deepest inmost circle of hell is in that literary tour from the afterlife? Some of you might remember, it is not fire at all. It's not fiery. It's frozen. Completely frozen, stiff, immobilized, solid. Whatever images and whatever the reality is or is not of anything that comes after, the truth Dante speaking was about the frozenness, the hellishness within this life of the immobility, of not being able to move, to flow, to grow. And somewhat ironically, it was on a warm summer night last July that I saw the experience of frozenness literally right before my eyes. I was at a party that a friend of mine was throwing, and his older sister Susie was there. Now, I've known Susie for a number of decades, and Susie is, I, I want to be clear about this, she's not a bad person. She's not a mean person. She's not a cruel person. In fact, I've seen her do things over the years in which Susie really takes other people's, uh, you know, birthdays and celebrations and milestones in their lives into account, helps them celebrate it. And, not but, and at the same time, Susie is a total control freak. She is really locked down. She is sometimes extremely, I've witnessed over the years, passive-aggressive in that need to control, in that need to define what's the right way to do things versus the wrong way to do things. And when you cross over that line and Susie doesn't like it, she lets you know in not terribly helpful ways. So there we were that night in July, this warm summer night, dinner had just been served. We were all hanging out. There was music coming over the, the stereo system outside. We were seated. In, and, and Susie at one point kind of exited the, um, the, the main house. And while the music was playing, she, she kind of she started to do one of this as she was moving towards us. She just started dancing a little bit. She just you know, started moving this way and moving that way, and the hips were swaying a little bit. And this is not the Susie I'd ever seen before. And I said, wow, Susie, like, you go, girl. That's how I meant it. And she froze solid. She stopped dancing. And she shot me a look that at first I'm like, oh boy, I really stepped in like she was angry at me. And I think she was. But here's the thing. Behind the eyes, what I could see wasn't anger, it was shame. And she actually said the words, what? What's wrong? And she said, I was trying to think, hey, you look great. You know, you're having fun. But the moment was gone. <laughs> it's kind of like our core belief at Wellsprings. One of them is, is um, we're just like the caterpillar. You know, the caterpillar, we have that seed of the butterfly yet to be within us. And I felt like in that moment when I so inadvertently, the opposite of my intention, Susie felt that she felt called out by my words. I felt like I saw that, that beautiful caterpillar that was coming to be and getting its wings, and, and then I stepped on it. <laughs> that wasn't my intent. In fact, the celebration surprise became a total shut-up, shut-down Closure, an expression of shame. I don't blame myself for her shutting down. It's not my responsibility. But what I felt was sadness and compassion. And something that I wish to celebrate within her was something that she experienced as a source of embarrassment. 
and not belonging. Reminds me, that moment does, of a very ancient Zen koan. Koans are riddles designed not so much to have objective, rational answers, but to kind of throw back on ourselves the nature of our consciousness and our thinking about ourselves and about our experience, and maybe break us open a little bit, a little bit more creative, especially with our sense of identity and who we think we are. So this Zen Khan goes, without thinking of right or wrong, what is your original face? Without thinking of right or wrong, what is your original face? There's another version of this I like even more, actually. Show me your original face, the face you had before your parents were born. Show me your original face, the face you had before your parents were born. What this koan is about, in many ways, is about that sense of identity. I am a this. I am from here. This is who I am. This is what I am. Solid. Final, totally formed. But if we really sit with the koan, really sit with the riddle, the puzzle of our identity, maybe we see something that below the frozenness, below the image, below the mask of identity, there's a whole big life there that is still coming to be. See, what I sadly experienced with Susie was like, you know, on this day before Groundhog Day, got the sense that for a moment she just peered her head out of the hole and she looked out and she saw something that really scared her. She saw her shadow and it wasn't acceptable and she crawled right back in. Something that was somehow not okay. Retreated to frozenness, away from the opening, away from the deep and rich life. I mean, here's the irony, folks, right? We know this. I just really like because Calvin says it in this one, or his mom says it. (laughs) Calvin, one of those days your face is going to freeze like that. Literally. And by the way, I mean literally, literally, not literally as symbolically, which is what literally has come to mean somehow. Literally, I've never heard of a story of a child in which their face froze ah, like that. But symbolically... How often does it happen to us as adults? Our face freezes like that. Our face freezes in the mask of total competency, total control, or total incompetency. What Brene Brown, great teacher, would say, the Viking, this is who I am, I win. Or the victim, this is who I am, I do nothing but lose. Both of those are expressions of frozenness. How often symbolically do our faces freeze like that? There are ways for all of us, powerful ways, to get in touch with what lies behind, deeper than the frozen face, the frozen identity. There was a form of therapy in the 1970s. It was very, very popular. I mean, there's still people who practice. I just know it was popular a number of decades ago called transactional analysis. Transactional analysis. I see some nods. Maybe some of you know these words. The, the words adapted child, the adapted child. Susie is kind of example A, an adapted child, very moral, very upright, always making sure they do the right thing, dividing right from wrong. Then there's nothing inherently wrong with the adapted child. It's just that many people sought transactional analysis because being an adapted child all the time really gets old and it gets very, very thin. There's not much life there. And so transactional analysis also talked about what they call the natural child. (laughs) Playful, free 
Kind of like uh, I saw in the 930 service, one of our kids during the, the third song. Just bouncing up and down and dancing. That's the natural child. A little bit of wildness in the natural child as well. To not always sure what the natural child's going to do. If we're with one or we are the natural child as well. But it's imaginative. It's joyful. There's a lot of life there. Transactional analysis addresses something that is a part of our culture. And it's a painful part of our culture. Which is that many of us, even if we don't rationally say it, believe it emotionally, we believe that we are suspicious of joy. That it can't be trusted. That the natural child exists to be constrained. Exists to be locked down, to be frozen. It's a great example of this by a woman named Susan Engel. Now, Susan Engel is a total smarty pants. I mean, she is a professor at Williams College, that amazing school in western Massachusetts where, like, you know, tremendous brainiacs go and has produced some incredible thinkers. And she's a teacher of teachers. She's a developmental psychologist. And because she understands our educational system and the way so many teachers are trained or perhaps mistrained for being teachers, she wrote this past week in The Atlantic. You can find this easily online. She's talking about the ways in which the one thing missing from school for so many kids and for so many teachers and by extension for so many adults is joy, is joy. She says this. You can't force a person to think carefully, enjoy books, digest complex information, or develop a taste for learning. You can't force that. To make that happen, you have to help the child find pleasure in learning to see school as a source of joy. I love the way she puts this next line. Adults tend to talk about learning as if it were medicine. Unpleasant, but necessary and good for you. That's the adaptive child right there. Necessary and good for us. Let's take our medicine. She tells this other story about what learning as joy really looks like. She writes, a friend told me the following story. One day when he went to get a seven-year-old son from soccer practice, his greeted him with a downcast face and a despondent voice. You see, the coach had chastised him for not paying attention and not focusing on his soccer drills. The little boy walked out of the school with his head drooping downward, shoulders slumped, dragging his way towards the car. He seemed wrapped in sadness. But just before he reached the car door, he suddenly stopped, crouching down to peer at something on the sidewalk. His face went down lower and lower, and then with complete ebullience, he called out, Dad, come here. This is the most amazing bug I've ever seen in my life. It has like a million legs. Look at this. It's awesome. He looked up his father, his features brimming with energy and delight. Can't we stay here for just a minute? I want to find out what he does with all those legs. <laughs> this is awesome. See, what Susan Engel is actually talking about, this mistrust of joy especially the way it reflects itself in our educational systems, is a form of secularized original sin. What is good for us can't feel good for us. That learning and joy and development don't flow or grow together. It's the opposite of what this message series, Original Blessing, is 
about, that joy and learning are not the opposite. And yes, I get it. We all know it. Every adult who is eh, adult enough, I guess that's how I describe adultish. That's how I describe myself. Um, we, we all know delayed gratification, right? We don't get to you know, get all our goals right now. We've got to put some things off the horizon. That's the way life is. And yet, how often do we constantly delay gratification? Some religions are based on an infinite delay of gratification. Until high school, until college, until the job, and then the job after that, and then the job after that, and then until maybe no job, and then you've got to find a job, and then until retirement. For some people, and I've been this person, until happy hour, until vacation, and sorry folks, yeah, I kind of set you up, until you take that one dream trip to those three places. Until, until, until. Until death. Joy requires real discipline. Real learning, real attention and time and care. It requires, as I've witnessed in my life over and over again, the willingness to admit that as much as I like my plans, my plans are a tiny little perspective upon what the universe is really all about. Joy requires discipline because it requires our willingness, as C.S. Lewis said, to be surprised by joy. To allow our lives to be interrupted. To allow that deeper in-breaking, such as Rumi, the great Mer- Persian mystical poet, says, the soul is here for its own joy, its own agenda. We're not in control of it, but we can open to it. Or put another way is we can't dance if we're frozen. Over the last number of months, we've been doing a little social media thing here at Wellsprings, hashtag Ordinary Praise. Some of you have participated within that on Facebook, and I was looking at um, that a few months ago, kind of what it's been like. Actually, if you just click on your own Facebook, click on Ordinary Praise, and you'll see that whole thing kind of unspool there for you. And one person, an adult in this congregation, wrote this. I love this as a reminder. Hashtag Ordinary Praise. Watching a child's wild, uninhibited dancing is one of life's greatest joys. You can laugh at me, but that's what one of our kids was doing, and more often than not. Here's what I love about what that adult saw. We can only truly see and perceive who and what we already are even if we've really, really buried it deep down below the ice within ourselves. If we can see it, we can be it. We can understand what Jesus was talking about when he pointed to a young child near him, and he said, truly, unless you become like one of these, you will not be able to enter the realm of heaven. That's that realm of heaven we talk about every week from Thich Nhat Hanh, one conscious step, one conscious breath. This is original blessing. Even if we don't feel it right now, trusting, opening to the reality that under the ice there is an unconstrained, limitless quality to our lives. We can be afraid of this because there can be chaos monsters there. It doesn't make it not true. 
for many of us when we are in touch with this deeper life beyond and under the ice. We become less defensive. We become less defended. We become more open. We know what it is to live a life with grace. We understand that the meaning of the word ecstasy in the Greek, ecstasis, means to stand outside of ourselves. But I've always believed about ecstasy is about standing outside of ourselves in our normal understanding so that, in fact, we get in touch with the self that we really are, that's always there waiting for us. Today, may you experience, not capture, but maybe just catch a glimpse of your original face. Maybe in dancing, in moving, in loving. Catch a glimpse of your original face on the face of a child who's reminding you about something that you haven't lost, you've just misplaced. May you, perhaps at the end of the day, when you look in the mirror, when you're brushing your teeth, see not just the face you've been looking at every day and it's so obvious, but catch a glimpse again. This face, your face a growing face, a pain face, a healing face, a loving face, a face that is like, amazingly, all the other faces. May we see eye to eye and heart to heart. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of limitless joy, of the flow deeper than any ice, of the warmth of heart and being deeper than any frozenness. May we remind ourselves this day and remind ourselves to see in this way this day that life is still moving. Creation is not long ago and far away. It is not long ago. It is not once upon a time. Like all true fairy tales, we can be reminded that the magic and the mystery and the meaning and the miracle are still here. May we feel this day, may we love this day, may we taste this day of that original blessing. Amen.